Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdrafts up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Heather Long, an economic columnist and member of the Washington Post editorial board. And today we're talking about the debt limit. What is it? How close are we to a major crisis? And how do we get out of this mess? We are joined by one of the best guests possible to discuss this, Jason Furman, President Obama's chief economist. Jason was intimately involved in that 2011 debt ceiling negotiation, and he's currently a professor of the practice of economic policy at Harvard. Welcome, Jason. Great to see you. Um, great to see you, Heather. I wish it was on a different topic, but I guess this is our topic today. Tell me about it. Inflation might be easier to solve these days. Um, so, Jason, briefly, what is this debt limit and why does the United States have one of these? Yeah, so it used to be that every time the Treasury needed to borrow money, Congress would pass a new law saying you can go out next week and borrow such and such amount of money. Um, in World War I, the borrowing needs got so high that that became too cumbersome. And so Congress started saying you can borrow up to a certain amount of money, and then you have to come back to us. They did that in 1917. In the 100 years since then, um, a little bit more than 100 years since then, it's been raised um, about 100 times, most of those with no drama, attention, or Washington Post live discussions. Fair enough, fair enough. So we officially hit this debt limit last week. Uh, explain to us why we're not seeing panic yet. You know, the markets aren't tanking. We're not seeing these dire consequences that economists keep warning about. Are people taking it seriously that we could potentially default? Yeah, so we're only allowed to borrow $31.4 trillion. That level was hit last Thursday. But there's a lot of ways of shuffling cash around to avoid having to borrow more than that while continuing to operate the government. These are often called extraordinary measures, although we've been doing them now back since 1985, when the first debt ceiling drama happened imposed by the Democrats on President Reagan. That's happened pretty regularly since then. These extraordinary measures are mostly accounting tricks. Some of them have some small real-world cost. It'd be better to not do them, but the real date is about six months from now when those extraordinary measures run out. And at that point, there really is no alternative but to either raise the debt limit or default on our obligations. And talk us through, we all read these really dire consequences if we got to a default situation in June or, or July, depending upon when that true date is. Uh, you know, How seriously should people take these warnings of a potential recession or a market crash or these types of terms being thrown around? What do you see could potentially happen here? Look, you know, we don't have any experience with this. We don't have any experience with this in the United States or around the world. Your normal fiscal crisis is that people become nervous about a country. They're afraid the country won't repay them. And so they stop lending to the country. This is a different type of thing. You would say the United States was going to effectively stop borrowing because it was going to say, you know, we have this self-imposed 
um, limit. You know, what would the government do? It might end up paying um, interest and principal on the debt and instead slowing down and canceling and delaying payments to everyone else. You know, who would those be? I don't know. Would it be senior citizens? Would it be veterans? Would it be teachers? Would it be the military? You know, a lot of spending um, would need to be delayed. What would the consequences be? A huge risk um, in terms of markets, in terms of consumer confidence, and the more time it lasted, just the absolute certainty of huge damages to the economy. You know, a lot of readers keep writing into us asking that question, how would this affect them? I want to just read one reader question. Agnes Height from Virginia wrote in and asked it this way. On a local level, what will be the impacts to me personally from a debt default? You started to hit on that a little bit in your last answer, but I wonder if you could hit it home for, for people yeah. what this would mean. Right. So first of all, tens of millions of Americans, in fact, probably more than 100 million Americans are getting things directly from the government. Social Security, Medicare, veterans benefits, unemployment insurance, a salary through a government job. All of that would be at risk of being delayed. Um, second, it could dramatically drive up interest rates, which could mean your mortgage rate, the rate on a car, on your credit card um, and the like. And ultimately, it could lead to a very serious recession where um, your job could be at risk as well. Now, not all of this happens the day after you hit the uh, debt limit, you hit the so-called X date, the date at which you run out of extraordinary measures, but all of these are a risk on the day after and a risk that grows dramatically um, in the days and weeks following. Yeah, take us back to 2011. You were there in the White House. We saw the photo of you standing there huddling around the president trying to figure out what to do in a similar situation. What what um, did you learn and folks like um, President now President Biden learn from the 2011 episode? Yeah, I mean, first of all, this is the amount of effort that goes into this just basically artificial problem is really depressing when we have real problems like poverty and climate change that merit much more attention. But the White House is right that they do need to pay attention to this. You get this wrong and it's gonna make everything else worse. Um, in 2011, we did negotiate over the debt limit. That negotiation we thought might have some upside in terms of getting a fiscal deal that would have some benefits. Um, that upside didn't really materialize. Instead, we got basically all downside as the negotiations collapsed multiple times, led to all sorts of brinksmanship. Interest rates ended up going up. It cost the government and taxpayers ultimately um, a lot of money. And so the lesson we took from that debacle where we went right up to the edge is don't allow it um, to be held hostage in the future don't have big high stakes negotiations over it, insist basically on a clean debt limit. That's what the Republican Congress did for uh, President Obama the rest of his time in office. Um, for President Trump, he got basically clean debt limits. You know, there were some minor negotiations around the edges. Sometimes something travels with the debt limit. Um, there's nothing wrong um, with that. But what you don't want is the incredibly high stakes brinksmanship and the threat of default to be used. I guess in retrospect, uh, would you say it was a mistake to negotiate with the House Republicans in 2011? 
I think it was a mistake in retrospect. At the time, there were good reasons to think um, that it wasn't a totally crazy thing to do. And, and to understand the negotiation wasn't that President Obama got a debt limit increase in exchange for the Republicans getting all they want. We were also negotiating increases in taxes that we liked. We were negotiating increases in infrastructure, extensions of unemployment insurance. So the negotiation itself had a lot of give and take within it. It wasn't just, here's the Republican demands um, in exchange for not shooting on um, this hostage. So, you know, the, the, where the Republicans are starting now, it's much more, you know, one-sided, um, lopsided. And right now the negotiation is even harder than 2011 because the Republicans don't really know uh, what it is they want. It's hard to negotiate with people if they won't even list um, their their demands. That's right. We're just starting to potentially see some vocalization of demands, but still haven't seen that actual list. Given the dynamics that we have right now, what would your advice be to President Obama and the White House team as they try to figure out a, a way forward here? President Biden um, and the White House team, Sorry. of course. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I, I get my own children's names confused all the time. So, um, you know, my, I, I think they're doing it right, um, which is to not negotiate. Now, they should stress there will be and there should be a fiscal negotiation this year. Discretionary spending, the annual spending that Congress decides every year for things like defense and education, um, those spending levels need to be set by September 30th. That needs to pass Congress, be signed by the president. And you know, it's going to end up being higher than what the Republicans want, and it's going to end up being lower than what President Biden wants. And so there absolutely should be a fiscal negotiation this year. What makes the debt limit different is the debt limit needs to be raised because of decisions made in the past about spending and decisions made in the past about taxes. It really is just the sort of mathematical result of what's already happened. And that's why it's just a routine piece of business that Congress needs to raise it. So I think the president should stress clean debt limit. But then once you get the clean debt limit done, absolutely a negotiation over the level of government spending that has to happen. So lay this out for me, because I'm hearing a number of people in DC talk about this, kind of what you're saying, which is basically force that clean debt limit. So don't negotiate, don't cave in to what's being asked from House Republicans. Do you think the White House should be prepared to default in order to make that case clear that they want the clean debt limit? I think the White House should be prepared to make very clear the consequences of the Congress for, uh, forcing a default on the country. And, you know, look, of course, if it's a day before the X date when the extraordinary measures run out and Congress passes a law that says there's a $1 cut in President Biden's favorite plan and the debt limit goes up, you know, of course he should sign that. I mean, debt limit bills have often had other things on them. It's not that nothing can travel with it, but, you know, those things have to be, you know, pretty sort of, you know, maybe it's some fig leaf that Congress comes up with, something that says, you know, we all agree that the debt is a problem. We all agree that we need to look at really major important government programs to see what can be done to better assure their funding. So there's various fig leaves, there's various small things, there's various things that could happen um, in parallel. But the more the president makes clear that, you know, 
he's not going to engage in a high-stakes brinksmanship negotiation on this topic, the more likely it is that Congress is going to do its job and raise it the way it has you know, roughly 100 times in the past century, with almost all of those times being without drama. Is there any benefit to the United States to continue to have this debt limit? Is it something we should get rid of? Absolutely. Um, we should get rid of it. I spent a lot of my time in those negotiations in 2011 with McConnell's top person, a guy named Rohit Kumar. And we both came to the conclusion that the debt limit was a terrible idea. Um, we then ended up writing an op-ed together after, uh, well, while President Trump was in office saying, get rid of the debt limit. So my view when Trump was president was Democrats should not use this weapon. They should not threaten default. And in fact, they should be willing um, to get rid of it forever. Now, as a practical matter, I think that could be difficult to get done politically. Um, but one thing in its favor, a lot of Republicans right now really think they're going to win the presidency next. A lot of Democrats really think they're going to win the presidency next. So rather than take this issue off the table for two years, maybe Democrats can hope they'll take it off the table for the next Democratic president, Republicans for the next Republican president. And the winner of that will be really not either party, but all of us. We can hope. Yeah, that's some interesting political calculus. Take us really big picture here. If we get to this point in June, this X date that you keep talking about, or basically a default type situation, is there any chance that the United States loses its status as the reserve currency or kind of really loses the trust of investors around the world? Look, this is a continuum not a binary. People often talk about the reserve status of the dollar, and that's the idea that lots of foreign central banks hold dollars. Dollars are incredibly safe. Dollars are incredibly liquid. Um, and we get some benefits from that in terms of lower interest rates, cheaper borrowing, and um, you know, and, and some other benefits in terms of ability to um, you know, have a higher living standard. So the reserve currency is a good thing, um, but it's not binary. Um, interest rates can go up one one hundredth of a percentage point. They can go up 10 one hundredths of a percentage point. They can go up one percentage point. And the more we play around with this, um, the more interest rates could go up. And just to put some context on that, let's say interest rates go up 50 basis points. That's half of a percentage point. Um, let's say that happens that would end up costing us about $100 billion a year. That would cost us a trillion dollars over the next decade. And it would be just a horrible irony that a process that started out with the goal of restraining the debt and lowering government spending ended up creating basically a new government program, which was spending $100 billion a year just on those higher interest costs. Um, and just to put that in perspective, 50 basis points, you know, when, when Prime Minister Liz Truss, uh, briefly the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom over the summer, came out with a budget that lost the confidence of markets, they saw their interest rates go up by even more than that. So that's a completely plausible, not at all crazy, um, you know, impossible market reaction to playing around with this. And, you know, would that mean the end of the reserve status of the dollar? Probably not. Would we be paying an extra $100 billion a year to keep that status? Yes. 
uh, that's a completely unnecessary price to pay. We don't need to do that. Yeah, that's a pretty big price tag for principals. But um, stepping aside from the debt limit, which you've wonderfully described why it needs to be lifted in a routine way, you also brought up fiscal sustainability for the country, which is a big issue on a lot of people's minds. Do these House Republicans have a point that we need to be looking at spending and we need to be looking at long-term solvency? The House Republicans have half a point. Um, the debt is not the number one thing that's keeping me up at night. I don't think it's the number one problem facing our country, but it likely is on an unsustainable course. It's at above 100% of GDP. I don't think that's a problem. If it stayed for the rest of time at 150% of GDP, let's say, um, that would probably be fine, especially given where interest rates are. Um, the problem is that right now it probably, if nothing is done, will keep rising um, past that. So I do think the debt is an issue, even if it's not the number one issue. Um, when I say the Republicans have half a point, the debt is the product of two things. It's the product of choices about spending and choices about taxes. And if you sit down and try to write down a budget plan, I think most people who are honest with themselves will end up having a mixture of both of those. Now, how you do the mixture and where the spending comes from, where the taxes come from, you know, that really depends on your values. But if you think that you can solve this all with spending, you either have you know, some very, very different values than most of the American people have, or you just haven't done the math and spelled out you know, exactly what those spending cuts um, would mean. Some of these people say balance the budget with spending only. You know, They never tell you how they're going to do it because even they wouldn't like um, the spending cuts. So yeah, we do need some spending cuts. We also need revenue. Should all be on the table if we could have a grand deal with that this year. Uh, you know, maybe that would be wonderful. I just don't think there's really any realistic possibility of that this year. Yeah, we like to joke in Washington, as you know, that there's a lot of bipartisanship whenever it comes to raising spending uh, for some whatever priority. Not, not a lot of bipartisanship or any emotion to cut. Um, I guess just curious, you've sat here in these halls of power. Um, what do you think it would take to get one of this this grand deal that you're talking about? It sounds so simple, but it's really hard politically. Do we need another commission? Do we, you know, what what realistically do you think could get us there? Yeah, in some ways we were more ripe for it in 2011 than we are now, and we weren't ripe enough that it came together. There had been two commissions that had come out with different proposals. Uh, President. Uh, Biden, uh, President Biden, President Obama um, was willing to do things to entitlements. Some people liked that. Some people didn't like that. Um, and the Republicans, or at least Speaker Boehner, was willing to negotiate over revenues. He put revenues on the table in his discussions with President Obama. Um, at this point, you know, no one is putting um, everything on the table. And the Republicans, I think, are even more extreme in just absolutely no taxes um, whatsoever. Um, so what would it take? I think it would take probably the debt being a clearer problem um, than yeah. it is now. So that could either be a big increase in interest rates where markets are much more concerned than they are right now, or it could take a forcing event like the tax cuts expiring in 2025, um, Medicare running out of money later this decade, or Social Security um, running out of money to pay full benefits 10 years from now. Those are some different forcing events that might bring the two sides to the table.
Yeah, that's a good point. These issues aren't going away. Um, so you talked about the debt not being at the top of your worry list. Obviously, it's not the top of the market's worry list either. Um, talk, take us to your assessment of the U.S. economy. What is top of your worry list? Yeah, and I should say, by the way, I think the market is under-worried about it. I think they're right to think we're probably going to solve the debt limit. But if my doctor told me that I'd probably survive the year, only a 15% chance of dying, I wouldn't find that the most comforting um, diagnosis. So I think the market might be a little bit too complacent um, on the debt limit. Um, on the worry list, I sort of there's a set a whole set of long-run structural issues. They're way more important um, than any of these macro uh, topics like poverty, like climate change, um, like improving our health system. But in terms of the short-run macroeconomic situation, my biggest worry is that we have seen most of the easy part of inflation reduction and that the next phase of inflation reduction is going to be much, much harder. Um, the inflation rate has come down a lot. A lot of that are supply chains for goods that have really rapidly um, improved in recent months. There's some more improvements that we're going to see in the data very likely over the course of the year in terms of the housing sector. But um, there's a lot of stubbornness out there. Wage growth is still much higher than it was prior to the pandemic. It is at a level that's more consistent with inflation of around 4% than the Fed's 2% target. And so getting rid of that last part of inflation could be very painful or deciding to live with higher inflation is something that I think is possible, might even be desirable, but it's very tricky exactly how you engineer that while retaining you know, as much credibility for the future as possible. Mm. You were obviously one of the early voices warning about the inflation staying high for longer than most people expected. You were 100% right on that. Uh, where do you see things now uh, do you, is it time for the Federal Reserve to back off a little bit on interest rate hikes or even pause after this next meeting? Yeah, so uh, so thank you for framing the question um, in that way. So I'll definitely come back anytime you want me on. The, you know, you want to distinguish between the policy the Fed sets, which is the federal funds rate, but that by itself doesn't actually matter for anything except banks borrowing and lending from each other overnight. What does matter is things like mortgage rates, business borrowing costs, the exchange rate, et cetera. And those are only indirectly affected by what the Fed does. I think the Fed should continue to raise rates at least two or three times more this year. And it may need to do more than that if I'm right, but maybe that'll be enough. But if they raise rates two or three times more this year, that's not going to actually tighten financial conditions. Um, in mm -hmm. fact, mortgage rates might even fall a little bit. Um, borrowing might even get a little bit um, cheaper. So that those rate increases are already priced in. I think it would be a real mistake for the Fed to come in and have a big dovish surprise that loosened um, financial conditions. But I don't think it needs to be actively trying to raise mortgage rates anymore the way it was you know, for most of last year. And the big question on everybody's minds is, are we going to see a mild recession or this elusive soft landing this year? Where do you fall right now in your crystal ball? Uh, so needless to say, I don't have a crystal ball. And one of the lessons is to always be prepared for anything. Um, and I'd be prepared for four scenarios 
that soft landing is no recession and inflation comes down to target, I'd put that at about a 15% chance. I think we could also have a hard landing where you have a recession, but the recession gets the job done. It does bring the inflation rate down. I think that's maybe another one in four chance. And then the rest of the probability are two scenarios where inflation actually stays high, either because we have continued overheating, no recession, and continued high inflation, or the fourth scenario is the worst, you have a recession, but even after the recession, the inflation rate is still above 3%. I think that's a really distinct possibility too. Historically, recessions tend to take about a point out of the inflation rate. If we just take a point out of inflation, that may not be um, enough. So the bottom line of all of that, you know, we definitely could have a soft landing, but it's a pretty narrow path given how tight the labor market is right now, how rapid wage growth is, and how unlikely that is to change um, in a big way, and how unlikely it is for inflation to come down absent a change in it. Jason, can you say what you're really watching in the inflation picture? You, you talked about how there are some encouraging signs of rent and housing costs coming down a bit, but um, are you watching these wages? Kind of what are you watching to see where inflation is likely to head going forward? What to, kind of what do you need to see to really feel comfortable that we're getting to a better place on inflation? Yeah, for me, these questions are always like, uh, which, which child is your favorite? Um, I just hate to pick any one of them. Um, but for me, broadly, uh, the labor market is far and away um, the most important. And so um, wage growth, every time the jobs numbers come out, the headline is always this many jobs, this amount of unemployment. I always turn first to look at what the pace of wage growth is. We're going to get very good data on that next week from something called the Employment Cost Index, which is a very accurate measure or a more accurate measure, at least, that we get four times a year. I'm looking at the degree of labor market tightness. In particular, what I'm rooting for is that we see some loosening in the number of job openings without the unemployment rate going up. That's not something we've seen happen historically, but that would be the happy way in which the labor market would loosen up, um, would be you know, job openings falling without unemployment. Um, and then finally, of course, one should look directly um, at the price data, but it can be so confused because every month there's 18 different stories as to why egg prices went up and used car prices went down and stripping through all that noise can be a difficult and contentious process. And lastly, I'm curious your take. We've all been watching these tech layoffs and the headlines. It feels like every day another few thousand tech workers are laid off. Uh, is there anything to make of that? Is that any sort of signal to the broader U.S. economies and where it might be heading? I think there's frankly very little signal in that. First of all, tech added a lot of jobs. So even with these layoffs, a lot of the employment is still higher than where it was, say, two years ago. A lot of these people are getting tech jobs in other sectors, maybe outside the tech industry. I think in general, it is much better um, to look at the government data, which tells you about all 150 million jobs in the country, rather than look at headlines for employers that employ, you know, maybe a million people in the economy as a whole. So I'm not saying, you know, it's difficult for that industry. It's difficult for people in that industry. Certainly job growth is going to slow down layoffs are going to rise, but I wouldn't make too much of the headlines. Um, the thing I'd make more of than any of those headlines 
is the 3.5% unemployment rate, the lowest in 50 years. And in a lot of ways, that's a really wonderful thing. Um, I'd love it if we could keep as much of that as possible. And there's some headlines today from the Washington Post that a new um, National Economic Council chair may be appointed pretty soon, and it could be Lael Brainerd, the current Federal Reserve number two. Uh, if she moves to the White House, any interest from you in potentially a Federal Reserve job? I love uh, teaching here at Harvard and joining you on things like this, so not going anywhere. All right. That sounds good. Well, thank you for joining us today, Jason. Very insightful. And we certainly hope that uh, you are right and we can reach a compromise on the debt limit soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit score grows, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans, like for a car or home. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Bill Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members of FDIC, out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.